We're in Genesis. We're in the family tree of faith. Let me pray for us, and we will get started. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Uh, Would your spirit lead us and guide us into all truth, please? We pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The family tree of faith. I wanted to back up from for 1 through 11 because I know we go fast. Uh, that's why most of you, this is your 15th or 16th time through the class. You really should be getting it by now. It really doesn't change a lot. So the family tree of faith, backing up theologically, we have in 1 through 11, we have God's work. So we're just going to theologically, we're going to summarize what's happening in 1 through 11. God's work is creative. Satan's work is destructive. God's work blesses. Satan's work curses. God's work gives life. Satan's work takes life. God's work is redeeming. Satan's is corrupting. In God's work, there are those who follow God, as we saw in chapter 4, where men first started calling on the name of the Lord. There are those who follow God, and then there are those who play God. God delivers the faithful. Satan's work dooms the rebellious. God's work preserves the family line of the faithful. And Satan's work fights against God's chosen ones. That's been happening all the way throughout Genesis 1 through 11. Hopefully you've seen some of those big picture kind of things. Now genealogically, that was theologically, genealogically, what have we been seeing? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, everything in them. That was the first, first section. The first Toledot, which is what rolls out of the first section, is, well, whatever became of the heavens and the earth? Sin. That's what became of the heavens and the earth. Sin came in. How did it get there? Through the evil one. He caused Adam and Eve to disobey. They didn't trust God's character. They didn't trust God's word. And so they fell into sin. That's what became of God's good creation. Well, whatever became of Adam? Whatever became of Adam was Noah. Well, whatever became of Noah? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now we're on the other side of the flood. Whatever became of Shem, Ham, and Japheth? Shem. And whatever became of Shem is Terah, who is the father of Nahor. Uh, Nahor is the father of, sorry, sorry, sorry. Terah is the father of Abraham. So whatever became of Shem is Abraham. Do you start to see stone by stepping stone? Stepping stone by stepping stone. Tonight's lesson, circle this. Because if this doesn't apply to you, I, I don't know. I've never met a person yet to whom this big idea does not apply. Here it is. Tonight's lesson, faith is living without scheming. Living without scheming. We're going to see that from the life of Abraham. So if you're able to read 12 through 25, you saw that Abraham, though a wonderful, amazing man of faith, was also a schemer. Yeah, and you saw it two or three different times. So tonight's lesson, faith is living without scheming. That's the big idea. Let's dig down into this. Whatever became of Terah, which is actually the Toledot that I had you read, which is the end of chapter 11 through chapter 25, 11. Whatever became of Terah. Abraham is whatever became of Terah. Abraham, such a huge central figure in the whole entire Bible. In certain ways, he is a picture of the nation. What? Yes. Did you see that? No? We have coffee. Okay. He's a picture of the nation. 
What happens in the land of Canaan? There's a famine. Where does he go? Egypt. What happens in Egypt? Not good things. He comes back out of Egypt, back to the place he started. Remember, he had an altar between Bethel and Ai. Huh. Seems like there's another people group who did the very same thing for the very same reasons. There was a famine in the land of Canaan by the end of Genesis. And God sends Joseph ahead because he's going to send the people ahead to Egypt. What happens to Egypt? Mm, Not good things. But God shows up, delivers them, and brings them back to the promised land. Abraham has, in a sense, acted out what the nation of Israel is going to walk through hundreds of years later. He is the father of Israel. Remember when Jesus is talking to all the guys, especially like in, what is it, uh, John um, 8, you know, and they say, you know, you're not yet a man of 50. How could you have, you know, how could you know anything? He goes, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham, why would he pick on Abraham? He's not picking on him. He's, why would he single him out? Because he is a humongous central figure in the whole Bible. Abraham. And we're going to talk about Abraham. Uh, he is the New Testament example of faith par excellence. When Paul is discussing faith, right? You're saved by faith alone. What example does Paul use in Romans chapter 4? He uses Abraham as an example of someone who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Humongous figure all throughout the Bible, but particularly in the Old Testament. So, let's take a look at him. He's a par excellence example of faith. What a background this guy has. Uh, Here's his background. We read in the book of Joshua. Joshua said to the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River, and they followed me completely and perfectly. (laughs) Oh, that's not what it says. (laughs) What did they do? What is Abraham? He's an idolater. He's worshiping false gods. In Ur. Uh, Does it just make you grab on and go, what? What is the Lord specialized in doing? Stepping into these kinds of situations and redeeming people for himself. And if you are in Christ Jesus, he has done the same for you that he did for Abraham. It may look a little bit different, but it's the same thing. He stepped in. He rescued you from your idolatry, and he rescued me from mine, and he saved us, and he gave us a hope and a future. Abraham is a man just like us. I don't want you to go, oh, we're reading about Abraham, this guy, woo-hoo, he's like way up here kind of a guy. Nope. Abraham is just a guy. He'd be sitting right at one of these tables going, yep, just a guy, (laughs) just a guy. I was an idolater living in Ur. That's where I'm from. So here's a little map. I think Laurie put this in your notes. Uh, There's some discussion over how Abraham got from Ur. By the way, where is Ur located? He's down there by Babylon. Yipes! Now, Ur, in its day, was, I want you to think of it as Abraham and uh, Sotera, his father, uh, were probably living in something like New York City. And they would have been in a sky rise. Yeah, a sky rise? High rise. High rise. You can tell I've never lived in one. A high rise that was overlooking Central Park. They had comfort, ease, they had it made. 
God shows up one night, <laughs> says, hey, let's chat, and sends Abraham and his family on this journey of about, it's about 450 miles to Haran and about 450 miles from Haran down to Canaan. So for you math majors, I think that's about 900, 900 to 1,000 miles. That's halfway across the country. So Abraham would have started in our New York City, and he would have come to Dallas. And he almost made it. He needed to go 30 more miles to, to find heaven. God finds him in Ur. Either they take the solid line or the dotted line, either one, and they go to Haran. What happens when they get to Haran? They stay there for a while. Okay, honey, I am losing my mind. Uh, My Bible is upstairs in my office. Would you mind... Getting my Bible, I might need it. (laughs) You know, I would love to borrow yours, but mine has all the answers in it, and so. (laughs) I remember some of it, but I want to be able to read it to you. So, anyway, Abraham comes with Terah, and who else comes? Okay, so they leave, and they they leave Ur, and they come to uh, Haran. His conversion, Abraham dies at 175, he starts life, yes, I know, at zero, but he starts life at 75, and it's in Acts chapter 7, this is why I need my Bible, Acts chapter 7, the first four verses. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is speaking to the Sanhedrin. He's giving his defense, and he happens to reference Moses. You say, what would compel Abraham and his whole entire family to leave a high-rise overlooking Central Park and go all the way over to, you know, if you've been to Israel, and if you haven't, you need to go, If you've been and you go down by the Dead Sea, you know on the way down to the Dead Sea, on the west-hand side, right, you're you're driving down, and so here's, here's the Dead Sea. Over here, on the west side of the Dead Sea, it looks like the moon. Remember? Yay! What a great land, Lord! Thank you! Traded in Central Park for this. (laughs) But something happens uh, that would compare in response to God. Well, I I can summarize it for you. In in verses 1 through 4, the God of, uh, the, uh, the Lord appears to Abraham and says, here we go. It's so compelling that whether Abraham alone saw it or Abraham saw it or whoever saw it, they go. They, if they get in their F-150, thank you, thank you, thank you. They get in their F-150 and they drive, but they're not driving, this thousand miles Let's see, where's Acts? Is that in the New Testament? I've got to find the New Testament. Where's the New Testament? Divided in the middle, there is Psalms. Okay, good, good. Acts 7, 1 through 4. Yeah. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia, so in Ur, before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. 
Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. It's, it's even a little bit worse than him getting to understand what the moon was before he went there. God says, come on, I'm going to take you to a land I'm going to show you. Well, what's its zip code, Lord? <laughs> Don't worry. Follow me. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. He just says, come on, you're going to go with me. And so they go. What instructions did God give to Abraham? Don't come with your family. So he moves, they all move to Haran, and now God kindly, graciously, patiently waits. Because Abraham could have, and perhaps should have, left his family to come to Canaan. But instead, he waits, and his father dies. Then he comes. Some would argue that he should have ditched Lot in Haran or Ur, too. Maybe so, probably so, uh, but the Lord took care of it nonetheless. So his background, Abraham's background, is an idolater. His conversion occurs at 75. There was no uh, vacation Bible school for Abraham. 75. There is a life-changing act of faith that... Stephen is talking about in Acts chapter 7 on Abraham's part. His legacy, his legacy, we've kind of started touching on some of his legacy. This is the way I like to think of Abraham. He started late, but finished great. He started late, but finished great. Four things I want us to focus on in the life of Abraham Tonight, four characteristics of his life. First, he was a man of faith. He was a model of a faithful God follower. Okay, now why did I say God follower? Not Christ follower. Because Christ hasn't shown up yet. Now, that's okay. Nobody panic. Jesus comes along later. Read to the end. He's in here. Okay? His father happens to hold the same ideas that he does. So it's all okay. Somebody goes, ah, he didn't trust Christ. No, I don't think he knew who Jesus was. What did he know? He knew God, Jesus' father. (laughs) who said to him certain things, and what did Abraham do? He believed God. And he then walked in faith, believing God. Okay? Well, then how do his his sins get taken care of? Great. Romans chapter 3. You should write that down and read it. uh, In times past, God did not count men's sins against them. But for people like Abraham... Remember the three great imputations? You wrote that down a week or two ago. You've got to start com- collecting your binder because you, you can't forget anything in this class. You have to go back. Three great imputations. First great imputation, the sin of Adam to the human race. Second great imputation, the sin of mankind to Christ on the cross. Third great imputation, the righteousness of Christ to everyone who believes in him. Okay, three great imputations. What happened to Abraham's sins? God passed over, language being Romans chapter 3, God passed over his sins. He didn't forget them, but when Christ were on the cross, Jesus paid for Abraham's sins just like he paid for mine and for yours. God has not forgotten. Abraham is in a good, good way and a good, good place. That's how his sins got taken care of and how God dealt with the Old Testament saints. Okay, so Abraham is a model of a faithful God follower. He's a convert. He's a servant. Can you imagine, just imagine, you've spent, I don't know if you spent 75 years there, 
but some people actually think he was born in Haran, then they moved to Ur, and then they, moved, then they went back to Haran. Okay, maybe so. I don't know. But you grow up um, in a certain standard of living, and God says, come on and let me show you the moon, and you can live in a tent. Okay, Lord, that sounds like a great trade. (laughs) What Abraham gave up just materialistically is unbelievable. What he forsook for a tent. He's a worshiper. Did you read in in Acts? Acts. Let's go back to Genesis, Bill. Let's go back to Genesis. Did you read in 12 through 25 that almost every place he went, his habit was to set up an altar, and there he worshipped the Lord. That's what he did. That was kind of his practice. He was a worshiper. He built altars, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, his herdsmen and the people in his family would have heard him giving credit to God for the things that he had, the things that he did. He would have given proclamation. It's like preaching. He would have proclaimed that God is the one who did this in his life. So he was a worshiper. He was a witness. Now, sometimes he's a bad witness, but we're going to focus on the times when he was a good witness. He was a good witness He was a brother. Uh, Lot. Okay, would you have gone three miles for Lot? I wouldn't have. I would have said, you made your bed, now lie in it. That's not what Abraham did. He chases him a hundred miles to the north. And he whoops everybody, and he brings back everybody, including Lot and all the stuff. That is a brother. You say, well, what, is a, what does it mean to be a brother? That's a brother. He, he helped Lot uh, when Lot could not help himself. He withheld nothing from God, and if you got all the way through uh, the end of the reading, he He even was going to sacrifice his own son. He withheld nothing from God. Nothing. Great foreshadow here, by the way, of a father and a son. Abraham foreshadows God the Father. He's the sacrificer. Isaac foreshadows God the Son, even to the point of carrying the wood to the top of the hill where the sacrificer was going to sacrifice him. And the whole scene foreshadows Gethsemane. The son is asking the father in Gethsemane, Bill's paraphrase, Daddy, is there a ram in the thicket? To which time the answer is no. There is no ram in the thicket, son. Great foreshadowing in this for the New Testament. So he is a man of faith, first characteristic. Second characteristic, he's a man with a covenant. Tonight, this is such a, a humongous lesson for understanding the Old Testament, and I would argue for understanding the whole entire Bible, Uh, If you don't get it tonight, ask someone who's taken the class before and let them explain it to you. Tonight is huge because we're going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant, which goes all the way through Scripture. Let me show you that. Abraham is a man of the covenant. Now, there were types of covenants in those days. There was a handshake covenant, which we saw in Ezra and we'll see, or we will see in Ezra and in Ezekiel, right? It's just today, we shake hands. That's, that's, in those days, that was a covenant. 
There's a shoe covenant from Ruth. Remember, he gives the one fellow the shoe, and you're like, what the? Yay, <laughs> I got somebody's shoe. That gave me permission to walk in the land that I just got. Oh, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So there's a shoe covenant. There's a, now, it gets, the shoe covenant is pretty, um, I don't want to say it's a minor covenant, but it's, uh, you know, if I have your shoe, I can see it and I can get it back, probably, if I needed to get it back for some reason. There's another covenant that's a little more um, robust, and it's called the Salt Covenant. You see it in Numbers, Leviticus, and Second Chronicles. We each carried a salt bag. And this covenant would be, I take a pinch of my salt and put it in your bag. You take a pinch of your salt and put it in my bag. Can I ever really get my salt back out of your bag? And can you ever get your salt back out of my bag? No, they're really, they've become intermingled. In that sense. So you can't, you see how these covenants, they're kind of getting more and more, um, you can't back out of them anymore. Because you're never going to find your salt. And I'm never going to find my salt. We can't go backsies and get back to where we were. We're, we're bound together. The most robust covenant there was is a blood covenant. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 15. The implication of this blood covenant is God is putting his own life on the line. That's the implication. And we're, we're going to look into this a little more. Right now we're just, we're kind of like a helicopter. We're kind of flying over the top of this thing. So there's an implication in Genesis 15 that I don't want you to miss. God is putting his own life on the line. So, he comes to, God comes to Abraham, perhaps he said it in Acts chapter 7. In other words, maybe there is a small allusion in what uh, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, that God showed up to him in Ur and said, I will give you some, I'm going to show you some land. It's possible he also kind of communicated what else might go with this covenant. It's also possible he didn't. So it may have started way back in Ur, the Abrahamic covenant. But it really comes to Abraham in chapter 12. First three verses. Let me read them to you. Now, your translation should say something like this. The Lord had said... To Abram, or Abraham, the Lord had said, key, what is had said? Okay, some would even say it's past perfect, meaning there was a past action that has present day results. So there is a past action that God had said to Abraham... Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. When did he tell him that? That's what Stephen quotes in chapter 7 of Acts. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt or curse you. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Chapter 15 is the actual making of the covenant, but God has already promised Abraham some things here in chapter 12. Chapter 15, formal ratification. Chapter 17 is where circumcision comes in, and that's a sign of the covenant, but the one new thing we learn in chapter 17 of Genesis is this is an eternal covenant. So flip over to chapter 17. Let's see. Well, 
uh, like verse 8, chapter 17, verse 8. I'll give the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. What does forever mean? (laughs) Are we still in forever? Whose land is it? (laughs) Why? It is their land. Because God said so. Forever. Okay. God has made some promises to Abraham. This is the whole backbone of the Bible. Everything is built and hangs on this skeleton. The Abrahamic covenant, God makes three promises to Abraham. If you've been listening to the uh, sermons in the mornings... Uh, Cody and whomever have been talking about the land seed blessing. There it is. Land, seed, meaning a lot of people, and blessing. You'll be blessed, but you'll also be a blessing to the entire earth. So God makes three promises to Abraham. I'm going to give you land, the land that you're now in. I'm going to give you so many descendants you can't count them all. You'll be blessed, and you will be a blessing to the whole entire earth. Whoa, that's some pretty big promises. God promises him land, seed, and blessing. And God communicates this to him in three U's. First characteristic of the Abrahamic covenant, it is unilateral. We're going to get to this in 15. Unilateral means, what is contrasted with bilateral? Bilateral, if you do this, then I will do this. That's bilateral. You've got a part in this. How has God communicated this covenant to Abraham? I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. Abraham, we find out Abraham's part in this in chapter 15 is to be sort of asleep under the tree. That's Abraham's part. (laughs) You just wait over there, Abraham. (laughs) Watch what's going to happen. It's unilateral. It's one way. God makes this covenant with Abraham. Contrast that with the Mosaic covenant. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you do this, I will do this. If, then. There is no if-then in the Abrahamic covenant. This is coming one way. It's unconditional. There are no ifs or thens in it. And Genesis 17, it is unending. Here it comes. The Abrahamic covenant. The rest of the Old Testament, you're going to see three additional covenants that affirm and amplify these three promises that God made. The first is the Palestinian covenant, and we'll see that in the last chapters of Deuteronomy. The Palestinian covenant is going to affirm and amplify the land promises. Next, you're going to see the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and that's going to talk about the seed But also, by the time we get to 17, we learn that, uh, actually, it's when God visits Abraham and Sarah and tells them next year you're going to have a son, and kings will come from your line. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant that God makes with David, has to do with the king part. But that's the seed. Remember, Paul picks up on this in the New Testament. And then finally, the new covenant, which affirms and amplifies the blessing part of this. Land, seed, blessing. Now, these are rolling out a little bit at a time over hundreds of years. Okay? God's made these promises to Abraham. Well, how, what would your question be? I know what my question would be. How can I know? God's going to take care of that in Genesis 15 because he's going to ratify the covenant. Second is, well, I don't know anything about this new covenant, so how am I going to get blessings? 
And so God adds in the Mosaic Covenant to help them understand how they can get blessings, but what are they supposed to learn along the way? We can't do this. We need help. It's supposed to point out they're supposed to go after it for blessing, but they're supposed to discover that instead they're trapped in sin. And the law becomes the way God uses to call people up short. Right? Paul says he was good. I was good in the Ten Commandments except for that doggone number 10. It said don't covet. And I coveted. And so the law awakens in him this realization that he's in big trouble. But God gives them the Mosaic Covenant to help them understand how they, if they obey, he will bless them. This is the backbone of the entire Old Testament and much of the New. And here it is. We start in a garden. We end in a garden. Across the whole entire Old Testament and New Testament, following the fall of man in Genesis 2 through 4, the Abrahamic covenant comes into play. It promises land, seed, and blessing. What do they have to do to keep the land? God spells that out for them as the Old Testament unfurls. They lose the land, finally, in 586. They've already lost the northern kingdom in 722. Now they lose the southern kingdom in 586, and they haven't gotten it back, except they're kind of back there now, which is interesting, since 1948. So the land kind of went away, and it's sort of kind of coming back. Now, no, I'm not going to say that, because you'll find out where I live, and you'll bring your pitchforks and your torches. If Israel were to be bulldozed off of the face of the earth right now, nothing in God's plan yet is impacted. Now, I don't want that to happen. But if it were, that's okay. Nothing yet has happened that's going to frustrate what God is doing. He will bring them back because they're going to get the land. Why? Because God told them it was theirs forever, which is a long time and we're still in it. Even October 2022 is still part of forever. Theirs is the land. The seed which has to do with the people and the kings and the Messiah. Jesus comes, as we've been learning in Matthew from the pulpit, he makes an offer for himself as the king. I am the Messiah. I am the Davidic king. I'm the one you were looking for. We don't want you. Burger King. Have it your way. And he withdraws the offer, and the mystery of the church comes on the scene, which is his body, Jew and Gentile, united together in one body. And he says, Paul says in Romans 11, Bill's translation, that there's going to come a time when the final Jew or Gentile, likely Gentile, is going to go through the turnstile. And that will bring to a close the time of the Gentiles from Luke chapter 21, verse 24. The times of the Gentiles will have finished. They began in 586 when they lost the land. The times of the Gentiles will come to a conclusion and God will begin again acting on behalf of his people. Now, unfortunately, that will initiate the tribulation. <laughs> So the land, the seed, the blessing from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jesus offered the ki himself as king to be the king of a kingdom. They said no. What happens to blessing? He says, tell you what I'm going to do. I've had this little thing in my hip pocket called the church. I'm going to go ahead and pull it out and announce it and launch it. And guess what, Israel? They got your stuff. Because the New Covenant is very clear what Israel is promised. She's promised 
uh, a new mind, a new heart, the forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Anything in there sound curiously familiar? (laughs) Guess what, Israel? The church has your stuff. And part of the way we're to be living is to make Israel jealous. We got their stuff. Now, they're going to get it, but we got it for right now. This is what you said no to. Let me show you what you said no to. It's kind of like, who is that guy? Monty Hall. Remember Monty Hall? What's behind door number one or door number two? (sighs) Door number two. Let me show you what you didn't choose. No, no, no. I don't want to see what I didn't choose. It's the new car. We were behind door number one. They picked door number two. Guess what, Israel? This is what you didn't choose. And guess who's got it? The Gentiles. If you were a good Jewish person right now, you'd be going, that's not good. Yeah, okay. From there we go from tribulation to the millennial kingdom to the eternal kingdom and back to a garden. The Abrahamic covenant, these are like three giant uh, cords or I guess if you ran on a subway with three rails. These would be the three rails that are running through the entire Bible. You see these covenants playing out. I brought this up the the very first night. Why does Jesus say, this is the new covenant in my blood? And you've thought, well, I guess it's not the old one. It isn't. It's the new one. Do you have any idea what he's saying? Most of us don't. What's he saying? New mind, new heart. Forgiveness of sins and indwelling Holy Spirit. The new covenant cut in my blood. I am the sacrifice. It is my blood that's going to take care of Cutting the new covenant. Mm. My goodness, you have been working out part of the Abrahamic covenant every time you take communion without even knowing what you're doing. And I, me too. That's what I'm showing you. Here it is, the Abrahamic covenant, the backbone of the whole entire Bible, particularly the Old Testament. All right, Abraham is a man of faith. He's a man of the covenant. He's a man of courage and fear. His courage, he risked himself and his men for his brother, Lot, in chapter 14. Lesson, family is worth fighting for. Family is worth fighting for. We're going to get into another story a little later in Genesis where Jacob doesn't fight for his family. And there's some curious statements that a couple of his sons make to him. And you go, what? We're not supposed to forget anything that we read. And so here is, family is worth fighting for. So Abraham is a man of courage. He's also a man of fear. Twice he relied on a half-truth to protect himself. You either walk in faith, resulting in strengthening, or you walk in fear, resulting in shame. Twice, Abraham pulls the old Sarah is my sister trick. Not good, but I'm so glad he did. He is just a guy. He is a man of faith, but he's also a man of fear. And so twice he does this, and neither time it works out for him. You'd think he'd figure this out, but no, and I'm glad he doesn't. Number four, he is a man with a flaw. He struggled with self-reliance in difficult situations. Mm, Am I meddling yet? I'm going to get there. He struggled with self-reliance in difficult situations. He took matters into his own hands. When there were famines in the land and a famine in the womb, he took matters into his own hands, and he ran ahead of God. Now, I can't prove it, 
But what do I think Abraham should have done when there was a famine in the land of Canaan? He should have stayed put because that's where God told him to be and let God work it out. But he didn't. He went to Egypt because it looked like he could get help from Egypt. Mm. What else did he pick up in Egypt? Hagar. Uh-oh. Not a good acquisition. Not a good idea on Sarah's part either. Hey, I guess I can't have any kids. Why don't you go ahead and have a, have a child with uh, Hagar? Okay, sounds like a good idea to me. Come on. That didn't work out well. They fight. He has to send Ishmael away. Why? Because God was going to work through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And remember Isaac's name? What, what Isaac's name? Means, yeah, he laughs or he who laughs. How would you like that? You think, God has a sense of humor. Every time you say Isaac's name, oh, I laughed. Oh, Sarah laughed. Is anything too hard for the Lord? He has a subtle way of reminding Abraham and Sarah, you laughed at me. You laughed at my promise. You laughed at my word. Behold, Isaac. Why don't you name him? He laughs. Oh, could I just name him Joe or something? No, no. I really think Isaac is the name I want you to give him. He ran ahead of God, and at times he trusted more in his schemes than in God. Let's see if we can apply this in the last five minutes. It's not hard. The self-sufficient don't need God. The self-reliant don't trust God. The dependent follower learns that God not only sees their circumstances, but is attentive to their prayers. Who learned the lesson first? Hagar. What? The Egyptian woman? She, this Gentile learned the lesson first? And you say, well, where did she learn it? She's off in the desert, right? She goes 100 yards away from Ishmael. He's going to die, she thinks. What's she been doing? God shows up and says, I see you. And then he shows her a well. And the name of the well is God hears you. Hagar, God sees you, and God hears you. Never think God does not see or God does not hear. If he would do that for the Gentile Egyptian Hagar, what would he do for you or for me who is indwelt by his Holy Spirit? Selah. The dependent follower learns that God not only sees their circumstances, but is attentive to their prayers. Well, what does scheming lead to? Loss. Loss of witness with both uh, Pharaoh and Fecal. Blessing. Peace. What do you get? Strife, heartbreak, unintended consequences, all kinds of nastiness comes with scheming. Faith is living without scheming. A lesson I learned from Abraham. Oh, we're not done yet. You're like, woohoo, we got off easy. He just stayed at the conceptual level. Here we go. Let's talk about a walk of faith. Let's talk about not scheming. God has given us a circle of responsibility. He said in his word, obey these things. Right? He's given me certain responsibilities. 
My job in those responsibilities is to obey him. I don't know about you, but there are many things that I am concerned about that are outside of my circle of responsibility. Anybody name, say, oh, five right now off the top of their head? Not out loud, <laughs> just yourself. Five concerns you have that are not part of your responsibility. Maybe they have to do with a relationship. Maybe they have to do with health. Maybe they have to do with, um, boy, I don't know. Is it, almost, uh, there's a lot of things that fall into concern. What is my responsibility in the area of concern? Trust. Do you love that old hymn? Trust and obey, for there's no other way <laughs> to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Trust and obey. Okay, so far you think, yes, I'm still getting out of this pretty well unscathed. Wait. If you have a walk of faith, you'll experience joy and peace. What happens when I am not content to just uh, hang out in my circle of responsibility? I begin to overreach. Whose responsibilities have I started to try to take on? Oh, that's right, God's. So instead of following God, what am I... What have I become? Playing God. Remember in Genesis, we have two lines. We have the line who follows God, and we have the line who plays God. Which one is the good line? <laughs> what happens when we start overreaching is we begin trying to become God and make things happen in our favor. Maybe it's things we want. Maybe it's things we don't want to happen. But we begin scheming. Okay? I begin to justify why I'm scheming. Perhaps this is just me. I begin to justify why God is not going... He's, he hasn't seen and he hasn't heard... And so I have to justify, well, Lord, look, I've got to do something here, and you haven't, you haven't shown up in any concrete way. What am I to do? You've, you've given me a brain. Am I just supposed to check my brain at the door? And so I begin to justify. I begin to manipulate because I'm going to get what it is I want, or I'm going to try to prevent what I don't want to happen. So I justify, I manipulate, and I run ahead of God. What do I get for this? Fear, anxiety, and stress. Yay! <laughs> what a great trade. <laughs> I try to play God, and I get fear, anxiety, and stress. That's what I need more of in my life. But I do it to myself. Oh, I don't know if I do it every day, probably, but at least multiple times a week. Especially with those slow people who drive so slowly in front of me <laughs> in the left lane. And they won't move over. I have lots of concerns that I have no responsibility for. But I do care about the outcome. And remember Cody's second application in the sermon today about don't cling to lesser things for the greater things? I spend a lot of my time on earth trying to make it heaven. And it is not. This is not heaven, and it's not going to be heaven. I am a pilgrim, a sojourner, a wanderer here. But when we start trying to have heaven here, we can get ourselves into trouble. So I can scheme by overreaching. 
I can also scheme by underreaching. Well, that's weird. How can I underreach? Well, not taking on our responsibility. Okay? Uh, for instance, um, Ephesians chapter 4, I believe, verse 32. How am I to uh, respond to those who have hurt me? Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you, is what Paul says. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, Lord, you don't know what he did to me. Yeah, you're right. I shut my eyes and I plugged my ears. <laughs> How can I forgive them for that? I don't know. How could my son have forgiven you for what you did? But he took it willingly to the cross. And forgave you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ugh. Not forgiving is underreaching. Oh, am I meddling yet? How about loving those who've betrayed me, denied me out of self protection, disappointed me, or just didn't get me? That person just doesn't get me. You ever, you've never said that because you're Christians. I've said it many times, but very softly. <laughs> they just don't get me. What have I just done? Rationalize, justify, and blame. This is not my fault or my problem. This is theirs. No. This is yours. We are not doing what the Lord has asked us to do. And some of it is very, very hard. What do I get if I underreach? I become more and more self-righteous, more lonely, and more angry. Yes, another great trade. I can scheme by overreaching. I can scheme by underreaching. Oops. So I will encourage you and encourage myself. Trust and obey. Or there's no other way. To be happy, joyful in Jesus. What God has told us to do, we need to do. Where he's told me my responsibility ends, I should end there and go no farther. And then I have to do love, joy, peace. What's that next one? Oh, yeah. I don't care for that one. Is there anyone more patient than God? No. So patience is actually not a bad thing. I think it's a bad thing because I want heaven on earth now. But God says, I'm long-suffering. I'm patient. Bill, can you be patient? Nope. <laughs> nope. Why not? Because the truth is, Daddy, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. You won't give me what I want. Bill, I'm so glad you said want and not need. Because I think I've met all your needs. Any of this making sense? I hope so. And so God chooses Abraham to be his man. A descendant of Adam. A descendant of Noah. He makes an eternal covenant with him. Giving him rights to the land. Seed and blessing. And through faith. In spite of his fears and flaws. God begins to fulfill his promises to Abraham, even in his lifetime. And so Abraham passes on this inheritance to Isaac. For next week, read the life of Isaac. See, this week is short, only 25 through 28. If you want, you can keep reading, though, because you will. <laughs> we'll be reading through 50 the next time, so you might as well just keep going. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Actually, you're not going to go quite through 50. We'll go through 50 in a couple weeks, but keep reading anyway. We're going to finish the book of Genesis. It'll be great. Next time, I want to hit one more time on the Abrahamic covenant, and then we'll launch into the lesson on Isaac. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Your word continues to be a light uh, unto our path. Would you continue to train us up in the way we should go? We are your children, and we need the training of your word and your spirit. Would you continue to train us, please? For Jesus' sake, amen.